You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Wednesday, June the 28th. It's cloudy, overcast here in TW11 today. Perfect conditions for bowling. And England have won the toss and have put Australia in. By the time you listen to this, they might have scored 450. I, I honestly have no idea how today will pan out. What I do know is what's happening in the racing world. We will continue to push towards the Irish Derby in the Northumberland Plate this weekend. News came out last night that Waipiro, Royal Ascot winner, will now continue his racing career in Hong Kong. No massive surprise there. Interesting run in Newcastle later in the week. Nashua, last year's multiple group one winner, continues her career in the hopping stakes. We're talking to her rider, triple Royal Ascot winning rider Holly Doyle later in the show, who also tells me about her jockey's championship aspirations. That is well worth a listen. She also touches on the mood, the atmosphere in the jockey's room after some more high profile whip bands we brought you notice of this yesterday on the podcast and what we predicted has indeed materialized frankie dottori as i went through yesterday all the reasons why eight days for his ride in defeat on Inspiral at royal ascot that will rule him out of the july festival take out of the july festival also a sheen murphy uh bands of significant length for international stars james mcdonald and john velasquez and also a band of note for danny muscat uh, David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, is my guest today. There will be those of you who are thinking there's a lot of time gets spent talking about Frankie Dottori and a lot of time that gets uh, spent talking about the whip. You probably just want to fast forward five minutes if you are sick of both, uh, David, but it's a significant day where both must be tied into uh, an overarching view of where we are now as a sport with this. Of course it is. Um, the new whip regulations came into force just before Cheltenham and we've now had the three biggest racing festivals of the British racing calendar Cheltenham, Aintree and Royal Ascot so I think we've got a, a pretty good vantage point from which to view where we are now um, remember that these changes came in not on equine welfare grounds but on grounds of perception the, the BHA, the steering group were apt to stress that when they they published the new rules of course they were they they were refined uh by the jockeys protestations against the use of the whip in the forehand position and uh the numbers came down from seven to six on the flat and from eight to seven over jumps and the penalties were beefed up as a result now this was a commercial decision uh by the BHA essentially it was to combat uh, and to attract the uh, the group of of floating voters that we perceive out there now as a result of what's happened over the the last 48 hours we've got two of the biggest names in the weighing room missing one of the other big meetings of the flat racing summer Asheen Murphy Frankie Dottori out of the July festival at Newmarket. Of course, we know now that uh, Dottori will not ride the winner of the July Cup. My fundamental question really is, is this is this working uh, from a commercial point of view? It seems to me that by uh, ruling out 
the the biggest names from the biggest meetings um that that is a um that is working negatively in a commercial sense but more importantly i think that it's based on a fundamental problem with these wit rules and that is that the punishment does not fit the crime eight days for murphy and eight days for detori for going one over for for um hitting their mounts seven times with the pro kush whip i don't think it's fair on the jockeys and it's not working for the sport Oh, well, I'm joined now by the Chief Regulatory Officer from the British Horse Racing Authority, Brant Dunshay. Clearly, the, the Frankie de Tory uh, story is going to be high profile now until through the July Cup. Given that the intention of the new WIP regulations, in part, is to, to present a, a better face of the sport to, to the consumer, has this not had a counterproductive effect somewhat? Uh, look, I... I, I argued that it hasn't nick um you know the the steering group in terms of coming up with their recommendations wanted to put in place a framework which uh, deterred jockeys from uh, breaching the regulations now there have been numerous breaches last week at royal ascot none involved a, a winning ride it's something like one ride in 100 is, has been found in breach in the first six months of the implementation of these rules so it's an incredibly um, pleasing thing to see that the vast majority of jockeys are complying with the new regulation and you know still uh, able to perform to their very best. There, there have been breaches, yes, at our major festival. Uh, the deterrent, or the, the penalties to act as a deterrent ha- have been significant. Um, however, uh, that was the motivation of the steering group was to to actually ensure there was a significant deterrence there. Yep, and, and I was part of that steering group, and I think I, I would still argue that having a significant deterrent is, is an important thing uh, if you are trying to deter win at all costs. But taking, taking to Tory's ride, for example, where he's gone, he's gone one over and they're very light taps, isn't that a clear case for there still to be some level of, of inbuilt discretion around the threshold? Uh, the, the, the issue of... Discretion is a really challenging one for us, and it was debated during the process of the whip consultation in that if you have a disqualification sanction and penalty attached to four strikes or more over, then uh, having an element of discretion uh, would lead to um, inconsistency in decision-making and uh, particularly that apply to disqualification. So, um, you know... determining whether or not uh, a strike is a light tap or it's not uh, became quite difficult and that was why the, um, the, the numbers, purely the numbers, were determined as, as being the deciding factor for stewards in making that assessment. How comfortably does an eight-day ban sit with you for the offence that you saw at Ascot? What I would say is that through the last six months we have met with a group of the leading jockeys and the PJA on a effectively a fortnightly basis and we've discussed all the issues that have emerged during the, the betting in and the implementation uh, of these new regulations and um, you know there is still a process uh, ongoing we're meeting I'm meeting in fact again today with a, a number of jockeys in the PJA to continue those discussions and then we are sitting down in July to uh, go through it in more detail um, and and we've made 
tweaks and changes along the way, both in relation to how penalties are applied, but also how the stewards are making assessments of technical breaches, for example, etc. So it, it has been a, a a constant process of evolution to to embed these rules, and it's been you know it's been a, a it's actually been a great collaboration with our our senior jockeys, both National Hunt and Flat, to you know implement those those tweaks and amendments along mm. the way, and that work that work will continue. Yeah, because so, you see see where I'm coming from. I I look at a, a body of work that's been undertaken over a long, long period of time to try and get the the right solution to what's a very very complex and difficult issue, and uh, at the back end of that that long, long, long process, a uh, ride like Murphy's, a ride like Dottori's would have incurred no penalty. And yet, here we are, same ride, and yet they've both got eight days and they're both missing one of the most high-profile meetings of the of the year. And I think, well, that that's an oddity, to say the least. I think the aims of the steering group were to um, you know, achieve a framework which changed behaviour. And I would argue that if you watch any of our racing in Britain now, subsequent to the implementation of the, the changes, and compared it with before, there has been a, a significant shift in the way jockeys are riding with the whip. And I think jockeys should be commended for that. I think it's it's fantastic. Um, and that was the... the you know the key underlying principle of what the, the steering group and the consultation was seeking to achieve. Um, you know, I, I get your point, Nick, um, and and you know everyone will have different views. Everyone on the steering committee had different views. Uh, in terms of implementing, I think you know delivering a change in the way jockeys um, are riding has absolutely been achieved. Brand, there's been a lot of speculation about when, in particular, the Dottori offence was picked up and the fact that it needed a, a jockey to quote somebody on social media for it then to trigger uh, Dottori being questioned by the Ascot stewards four days after the after the fact. Um, c- can you shed any light on that? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the reasons for the recommendation to establish the Whip Review Committee was to ensure that there was a mechanism to pick up any issues that might not have been picked up on a race day. Um, it's been done you know, almost every week that the Whip Review Committee have sat over the last six months. They've picked something up um, that, that they've then addressed subsequently. So it was about achieving that consistency. You know, day one at Royal Ascot, incredibly busy. Um, the stewards, the stewards haven't seen it, uh, and in fact, um, you know, there's nothing, um, you know, inconsistent uh, about that. The fact that they they may have missed it, they've, they've been looking at, uh, you know, all manner of things, and it was a busy day, day one uh, in the, in the stewards' room. So uh, it was it was um, missed. Um, yes, there was a tweet by another jockey or retweet by another jockey that highlighted the fact. Um, but uh, it, it would have been undoubtedly picked up um, by the committee in its deliberations. You can understand why there might be a bit of concern about whether the, the sport is being governed by trial by Twitter or, or trial by whistleblower. Um, are you comfortable with that? Well, uh, as, I, as I said, um, the, the fact that it appeared on 
Twitter was a coincidence. We've every every week that the, the panel have sat, there have been something generally that's been picked up that wasn't picked up on the race day. So the process actually is working really effectively in terms of having that uh, that, that that sort of fallback mechanism to to pick up any breaches that weren't detected on race day. All right, Brand Shea, Chief Regulatory Officer for the BHA, and more from Brand in a moment on a on a separate topic. But let's just deal with with his comments on the whip first of all. Uh, I'll start, if I may, uh, David Yates, with with the the point about how this how this offence was picked up, uh, and Brand saying this undoubtedly would have been picked up anyway, uh, even if it hadn't been picked up on the day by by busy stewards. Uh, what did you make of that? Well. I- that's the that's the mechanism that they use, isn't it? I mean, uh, it won't be the only offence that wasn't picked up on the day, and th- there is a there is a safety net essentially for such offences to be picked up. I, I don't really have a problem with the mechanism. What it does show is that you know, again, we're talking about the the the, the whole the whole idea of wit reforms is uh, to. Uh, to ha- to ensure that jockeys use the pro cush whip in a way that a is is fair on the horses that they ride and b does not cause offence to the public. I think I, I think that's a a fair summary. Now, with those uh, examples where a jockey goes one over and it's not picked up, albeit by some busy stewards, does that not tell you that? nobody was offended by what happened and therefore that the the punishment essentially doesn't fit the crime you know i i take issue with a couple of things that uh brand dunshay said i i don't agree that jockeys are performing to their very best i think there is um in in many cases day in day out you can see the cogs whirring in jockeys heads when particularly those who are trying to make ground from the back of races i think these days you can see them thinking right okay i've got up to 5 i think we'll call it a day there um and you can't blame them when the races that they're riding in aren't worth very much money therefore their percentage for winning it uh, is not a a, a an eye-watering amount by any stretch of the imagination. And so they put their sticks down. So I actually don't agree with that. I think that jockeys are not performing to their very best. I think they are frightened uh, away from performing to their very best. And I'm not sure, I'm not taking issue with what Brant Dunshay says about one ride in every 100 uh, being punished and, and, what what I my problem with that is that yes of course a system is going to work where the punishments don't fit the crime if you introduce hanging for stealing a loaf of bread it's pretty obvious that fewer people are going to get strung up because um, they're not going to go near stealing loaves of bread the the punishment fits doesn't fit the crime so I, I don't think it's fair to come out and say oh look this punishment's working only one of the and uh, only one in 100 jockeys is uh is breaking the rules well that's because the the penalties are draconian and they're not riding to their best as a result because they don't want to go over those limits you may well be familiar by now with the fact that the George Bowie a Sadna story has taken an interesting twist in the last 24 hours. The owner of the horse that went off one of the market leaders for the Coventry Stakes before disappointing, Sheikh Abdullah al-Malek al-Sabah, 
has told James Byrne of the Racing Post um, that there was a, a significant raft of reasons behind uh, him removing the horses from George Bowie, despite George Bowie's record. He said, I've been an owner for 35 years. I respect George. I told him not to run a Sadner as the horse had hurt himself at home before the race. A Sadner is a champion. I was angry and took the horses. I told him not to run, but he told me not to worry. And he finished ninth. He also said that Al Dasim was lame before the Commonwealth Cup and didn't run and Danger Alert couldn't run because the vets had taken him out. So he was unhappy and he had uh, spent an awful lot of money getting his friends and family to ask it. Uh, Bowie uh, responded saying um, that he was very grateful to Sheikh Abdullah, as he told me yesterday. But specific to this issue, which is the important one, he said, Asadna had sustained a cut on his shoulder on the Friday morning before Royal Ascot. I immediately notified the BHA vets as well as my own vet. He did not miss a day of work and was at no point lame. The BHA was sent step-by-step reports, including regular photos of the cut and videos of the horse trotting up sound, as well as the horse cantering prior to declarations on the Sunday. Hence, why the horse was passed fit to run. Um, I again put it to Brant Dunshay. Why wasn't this information placed in the public domain for the uh, benefit of the of the hang on why wasn't this why wasn't this information placed into the public domain for the benefit of punters um there are two schools of thought on that uh some would argue that uh, any information in relation to a horse whether it's relevant or not should be put in the public domain and we see other racing jurisdictions um you know provide an enormous amount of data um, to the, the betting public about a horse for that individual or those punters to make their own assessments um, and factor that in weighted accordingly. Uh, there's also the view that, um, you know, the, the welfare of the horses, um, you know, must be absolutely prioritised and uh, in order to do that, uh, you know, there, there has to be a, a collaborative relationship between the regulator and, and trainers on this particular issue to ensure that there is an open and and frank exchange of information so that uh, everybody can be certain that on race day when a horse um, presents to race it is it is fully fit that is and it is uh you know its welfare can't be compromised and and so it's about striking that balance yeah and and that's entirely commendable but isn't it perfectly reasonable that the the betting public who fundamentally are, are funding the sport uh, should should be aware if there is something that is going to materially compromise or has the potential to compromise. They can be the judges of that. The the chance of the horse that they're that they're betting on. I think it's it's an an entirely um, uh, reasonable position for the betting public and racing fans to take. Uh, and you know we we are working towards. Uh, trying to put as much information as we can uh, in the public domain to inform the public, um, but it is, as I said, it is about striking the balance. Mm. So, so you you think that that we could be moving towards a situation where a um, a report like this from a trainer to the BHA you know, was was put in the public domain? You you think that in in due course that that could happen? Oh, look, Nick, I think I think in time. Um, it's possible, uh, but I think that at the moment, you know, given the um, external threats that the sport has has been facing with those that are opposed to racing, um, welfare is the absolute priority, and we must do everything we can to ensure that we're able to collaborate, engage with trainers in a positive way, in a constructive way, so that you know we can ensure that the horses' welfare on race day is not compromised, um, and you know the the, the 
best way for us not to achieve that is to take a draconian regulatory approach and um, and have then trainers perhaps less um, less inclined to want to share openly share information with us in a constructive and collaborative way. So it's it's challenging, and it and it is about striking the balance. Uh, Brandon Shea again, David Yates with me again. Should this information have gone into the public domain, Dave? I suspect it probably should. Um, I don't think this is a um, a cut and dried situation it, it, in general, Nick. Um, obviously, there'll be lots of people saying our oh, punters should know everything, um, and and that news of this cut that was sustained on the Friday before Royal Ascot, so four days before Asadna ran in the Coventry, that that should have been released. Brand Dunshay hinted to you there that that might become BHA policy in the future. Um, on the one hand, uh, that it, it's it's good for racing to be seen as a transparent sport and for um, issues that affect horses, for punters to have knowledge of those. If it's, you know, let's face it, it's deemed relevant for the BHA to know about it. The owner knows about it. So why should punters be kept in the dark? I completely get that argument and I have a good deal of sympathy with it. Um, I also, though, acknowledge that what will come out of this uh, when every little issue is reported, that punters will not really know um, what to uh, what, what to make of all the information that they get. You know, it, and anyone who's dealt with animals of any kind know they know that there can be certain issues that seem one day to be quite important, and then the next day, without any veterinary care or anything else those animals are absolutely fine again um so i i I think it's it's probably right that racing has um a more transparent uh way of doing things in this sense and that that you give the information to punters and they make of it what they will i i don't think that uh that this is going to play out in a in a way whereby that that information is always for the good. I think that punters will use it to make decisions, and then uh, twenty four hours later, when the situation with horses has changed, that they then regret acting on that open house information. I I think that's the way that it's going to go, but I don't see any reason why they should be kept in the dark. Well, Holly Doyle is difficult to keep out of the news at the moment. Three winners at Royal Ascot last week. Nashua goes to the listed hopping stakes at Newcastle at the weekend. She's just four off the leaders in the Jockeys Championship, which is now incidentally headed by Joe Fanning, which uh, the Racing Post have uh, quite rightly made a, a fuss of today. Uh, there, There's a, a big chance that today at Carlisle, Holly completes the full set of winners across all the flat venues in the country and it is uh, en route to Carlisle that I find her now. Holly, I mean, since we last spoke about 10 day- days ago, an, an awful lot has has happened. Yeah, it's been um, a mad few, a few days. It's been um, pretty good. And you did tell me on the on the podcast, and I should have taken the hint about Bradsell being supplemented for the for the King's Stand and dropping back to, to five furlongs. That, that must have been a, a particular thrill for you, that victory. Yeah, definitely for the whole team. Really, um, you know, he won the Coventry there a year ago, and um, you know, he he he'd been ruled out for the rest of that season last year, and to get him back to his best um, at Group One level back at Ascot was pretty special. 
you know, he won the Coventry over the stiff six furlongs at Ascot and he saw it out well. But um, I remember saying I thought it was kind of a steadily run race and he showed a, you know, a good turn of foot. So um, his two runs this year, he hadn't really been seeing them out. And the first time I thought he might have needed it. So um, he'd come on for it. But he kind of ran the same sort of race at Haydock. How much higher was your confidence Friday, Saturday than it had been, say, Monday, Tuesday? Um, yeah, obviously when you're riding, you know, the crest of a wave, your confidence is really high. And, um, yeah, I find the riding easy, easy when I'm on the back of the horse. I um, feel very content. It's everything else that comes along with it that I find trickier. But, um, no, obviously when you have a winner on the first day of Royal Ascot, you, you are, um, the confidence levels are pretty high. I, I think I kind of thrive off the pressure and, um, Ride, riding horses really <laughs> it's good because I'm a jockey <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's helpful um, t- tell me about Nashua this weekend and the thinking behind uh, heading to, to Newcastle for this for this group three yeah obviously um, she ran in St. Clue her first run back um, I galloped her beforehand and she's she's an even bigger um, frame now she's massive she looks like a colt and um, she's the type of mare that probably will hopefully come on for the run um, I think the option to go to Newcastle rather than the pretty Polly um, seems um, you know a good opportunity to get her on a sound surface um, get her hopefully get her head back in front and her confidence back up because you know you have to remember that she did a lot of winning last year but she also did a lot of traveling and um, she had some hard races so would that nicely put her right for for a repeat at the Nassau do you think you'd like to think so and that that is the plan I think going forward but obviously we'll just have to see how we get on um, with this stepping stone, really. And I, I mentioned at the beginning there, you're, you're only, I think you're three or four off the top of the of the Flat Jockeys Championship. I think the 35 is the lead and you're at 31, is that right? Yeah, um, things are going pretty well and I'm riding plenty of winners and my agent's doing a good job, so hopefully I can keep things going forward. You know, every jockey wants to be champion jockey and I'm kind of in contention, but I know how hard it is and, um, you know, Ascot, I sustained um, a four-day suspension, which is unfortunate, Unfortunate, but I think think we all did, didn't we? <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I think you, your suspensions are significantly less than one or two others around you in there, I, I, I would imagine. Um, is there is there a feeling of anxiety about the amount of suspensions in the weighing room at the moment? Um, definitely, I think so. I think we're all kind of walking on eggshells and trying not to put a foot wrong, but, um, you know, no matter how hard we try, sometimes... <laughs> it's not good enough but um yeah it is it is hard at the moment for jockeys within the weighing room and um we're all trying our best to adapt um but with the new um guidelines and the harsher penalties it is um a tough pill to swallow when you do get one a uh, holly doyle there fresh from three winners at ascot nashua goes on friday she needs Winner at Carlisle today to complete the full set. It's all happening for her, Dave. And for though again, for people who love talk about jockeys championships, you know, there was a good story in today's racing post about Joe Fanning being at the top of the top of the table, but they're all they're all within about four or five of each other, a whole little cluster of them, and Holly's right there in the mix. Yes, she is. Um the uh, Yes, she is. It was a, a brilliant Royal Ascot. Uh, for Holly Doyle. I just looked at the last two weeks of the, the rides that she had. According to my record, she rode for 27 different trainers during that time. So her client list is a very long and impressive one. As you say, there's there's something of a cluster when it comes to the, the race for the jockey's title. Joe Fanning, 35. Asheen Murphy, 34. 
Holly Doyle, 31. William Buick, 31. Tom Marquand, 28. And Neil Callan, 26. Um, I, just looking at the betting, uh, Asheen Murphy and William Buick dominate. Uh, they're pretty much, it's pretty much even money each of two. And then you go to 16s, 20s for um, Holly Doyle and Joe Fanning. I, I certainly don't think she's out of it. I think that she's an unlikely winner. My, my own view is that William Buick's done extremely well still to be on the coattails of the leaders, four off the top, uh, when his principal trainer, Charlie Appleby has had an indifferent time of it over the last few weeks. And when that stable does get going again, I think that there's every chance that he will overhaul the names above him. But is he the, is he the bet then, do you think, Buick? Well, I mean, if you're, if you're really desperate to smash into an even money shot that you can't collect for, what is it, four months, then feel free. But that, that personally, I, I think I think he's in a good position uh, considering things haven't gone to plan if, for, for much of the time uh, since the since the competition began on May the 6th. How, how close is that? I mean, if Joe Fanning is going to be a massively popular result at 50, whatever he is, uh, and Asheen Murphy, the prodigal son, Holly Doyle, obviously her tremendous talent and work ethic, massively respected, William Buick, enormously popular when he he finally won it at Tom Marquand can't be too long before he gets there and then Neil Callan is he going to be the pantomime villain he's behind you could be it's it's funny that you go through the top six and they're all actually quite interesting stories the the new talk of the jockeys championship I always say it's a, it's the best cure for insomnia you can find without opening a bottle of pills but in this instance, it, all those stories are quite interesting. You know, no doubt um, enlivened and illuminated by the likes of Joe Fanning, Holly Doyle, as you say, Asheen Murphy. There's a, a, a strong redemptive aspect uh, to that tale, although we've 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 banged that drum a few times already uh, this season. But yeah, it's a lot more interesting than normal. I would say that William Buick is the most likely winner, but. For all that she's an unlikely one, Holly Doyle is certainly part of this conversation. And for the seasons that follow, it may well be that if she can edge, put, put a few on top of the totals that she's uh, currently knocking in now, then she will be very much a player to become the, the first female champion jockey that British racing's ever seen. Okay, I mentioned that Waipiro, horse aboard whom Tom Marquand won the Hampton Court Stakes, is off to continue his career in Hong Kong. On which note, we head to J.A. McGrath from uh, this week's report on the Hong Kong beat. Nick, there are only seven race days left in the current Hong Kong season, which ends on July the 16th. The ranks are thinning a little as the curtain is about to drop, but there's always something on the boil. Last week, it was all about Royal Ascot. And uh, Hong Kong punters are pumping most into the growing turnover of Whirlpool, which can only keep growing. From a Hong Kong angle, it was disappointing that Wellington's challenge in the Queen Elizabeth II Jubilee Stakes was so short-lived. The one-time champion sprinter became upset in the starting gates, banged his head coming out, and in the process delivered an almighty belt to the face of Ryan Moore as he threw his head back. Wellington finished 10th and Ryan came in with blood streaming down his face. All very unfortunate. An adventurous challenge that deserved a better result. 
It was disappointing for connections, including Richard Gibson, who leaves the Hong Kong trainers' ranks next month. Richard, a proud Northumbrian who first made his name sending out Group 1 winners from his training base at Shantee, has spent 12 seasons in Hong Kong. In that time, he trained 286 winners. It may not jump off the page numerically, but in that time, he trained two champions, Akid Mafid, the winner of the 2013 Hong Kong Derby and Wellington, the outstanding sprinter two seasons back. He also won a classic mile with Gold Fun, who he took to Royal Ascot to run second in the Diamond Jubilee. Good luck to Richard in whatever he ventures into next. Meanwhile, there's uh, nine races at Happy Valley today, and we're going to have a look at that now. I think the best on the card is in race one, number one. That's Packing Hurricane who's attempting to make it a four-timer uh, for Casper Founds, and also Harry Bentley, who's been in the saddle the last two times that Packing Hurricane has won. He's a good type of stayer. This is his uh, first step up to 11 furlongs, 2,200 metres. However, he's got all the credentials to say he's going to see it out. It's a small field. It may be a trappy uh, tactical race. However, I think that Packing Hurricane will come out on top. An interesting runner is number three, Swan Bay, who's uh, trained by Chris So and ridden by Vincent Ho. Uh, Swan Bay is a son of Australia and looks like he's a budding stayer in the making uh, and uh, should be quite a good one. So I put him in as the danger. So in race one, number one, uh, Packing Hurricane to beat number three, Swan Bay. Uh, later on in the finale, race nine, uh, Zach Purton and John Size once again uh, team up and here they do so with Reward Smile who uh, looked, I thought, a little bit uh, unlucky not to win last start. He's uh, starting from uh, stall number 10 and he comes up against Superb Capitalist, his old rival. But I think he might just turn the tables on him and uh, I think you can look to Zach Purton just riding Reward Smile for speed to be up there early and I think that he, he might get the money this time despite his awkward draw. So race nine, number two, Reward Smile and take him in a tote swinger with number one, Superb Capitalist and also number three, Phoenix Light in your combinations. So that's Happy Valley today. That's also the Hong Kong beat for this week. I'll have more for you next week. Now, a team of charity fundraisers from Cheltenham Racecourse uh, have been joined by one or two familiar faces to climb four of the highest mountains in Great Britain and Ireland in just four days. I mean, it sounds like my idea of hell. Luckily, the intrepid explorers are led from the front by Andre Klein, who's Cheltenham Racecourse's assistant general manager. And Andre joins me on the line now. Andre, first of all, um, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Well, look, as you as you know, Nick, it's the centenary year for the Gold Cup. So this is a way um, to, to bring some attention to that fact, um, uh, first and foremost. And probably actually, first, but the most, most important thing is we're doing it as a fundraiser for racing welfare. So, um, you know, we roll on from here to a, a golf event on the same day as the McCoys, which is a fundraiser, a charity fundraiser that's been having a 100-day countdown into the Gold Cup with various activities and, you know, most of community-orientated in the lead up to the big race um and there's lots of other things going on production of a you know a fantastic well i've obviously seen where, where this book is going but it's going to be a really brilliant testimony to to the to, to the gold cup um so yeah he, heaps of little things that you'd kind of typically expect with major sporting events that are celebrating uh, centenaries and the like 
Okay, so just talk me through the itinerary for, for the next few days and what you've done already. Okay, so we, we, went over, we flew over to Ireland on Saturday. We visited a few Irish race courses over there, which was really, you know, first thing, it was amazing to see what the Gold Cup means to the Irish. We know what it means to them. It wasn't a surprise, but um, we ended up just doing Kalani, um, where we met a lot of their committee members and, and, uh, and, and members of their team. Um, we took the Gold Cup in the company of Barry Geraghty um, to the top of Karen Toonhill, which is the tallest peak in Southern Ireland. Um, and it was... You know, I tell you what, for anybody who's ever uh, looking for a, a you know, enjoys a walking holiday, I highly recommend that. But it was, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty tricky climb. Um, there's a, a section on it about a kilometre and a half, which was is really just a scramble. You have kind of hands and knees. Um, but the gold cup was was safely stored in, in my backpack, all wrapped up in bubble wrap. Uh, but we we got to the top, um, and that was about twice. It was about six hour. Six out of six hour trek. Um, we left Ireland yesterday morning um, on the ten past six. So it was a good three thirty, you know, three thirty in the morning start. Trekked over to Snowdon, where we were joined um, by David Redford from Twin Hills and other colleagues, and uh, Graham McCourt, who you remember as a, a, a Gold Cup winning jockey on Norton's Coin at mm. hundred to one. I was just saying, just say he was a he was a hundred to one in running about halfway through the ascent yesterday, but. In, determined fashion he made it up to the top and uh, at Snowden. I promise you we had horrific conditions yesterday it would have it, we're talking you know 100 mile an hour gusts at the top uh, visibility probably five meters and it rained the whole the whole way just your average Welsh Welsh summer really wow I, I, I as I said rather rather you than me and who who is the team that is doing the whole thing so we've got uh, two colleagues from from Cheltenham. Um, it's uh, Meg Furs and and Olivia Tudor, who's part of our you know marketing team. Um, they've got we've got Simon Cooper, who's um, head of the stud book at Weatherby's, a company director at Weatherby's, who's undertaken a few of these madcap challenges with me before across the world, um, and his son Adam. So um, unfortunately, we lost Rosie Tapner. She was due to you know to to come along, but I think. Might be in the high heels at Royal Ascot, um, and she's trapped a nerve in her back and, and unable to join us, which is disappointing. Yes, because I know she was a, as enthusiastic as anyone about about doing it. You're raising lots of money for racing welfare. How can people get involved? Yeah, look, I think the best thing they could do is jump on Just Giving. Um, we say uh, go, uh, search for Gold Cup 100, um, or go through the Jockey Club website. Um, you know, so that that's the ideal. And I say today we're up to Scarfell Bike Nick with with Richard Johnson, and then. We finish up at Arkle, which is rather fitting. Not Ben Nevis, because Ben Nevis won a, a Grand National, not not a Gold Cup. But Arkle, hill up at the right at the top, um, in, the, in, in Sutherland, um, three-time named, you know, gave its name to the three-time uh, winner of, the, of our great race. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. Cause it's a terrific climb, um, and it's going to be a stunning backdrop for a photograph with the with the lovely Gold Cup. Mm. And uh, of course, next year I gather you're going to to do a climb in in, in memory of of that little known 1932 Gold Cup winner Everest. Yes, well, uh, to be honest with you, someone someone did work it out on one of those car journeys that, that if we're going up, and if you can't going up the mountains, you know, this is part of this challenge, and coming down the mountains, if you can't coming down as an ascent, then we've actually climbed Everest. So that's a, that's a, that's an interesting kind of you know, it's a pinch of salt statistic for you. <laughs> Um, I like it, though, very much. Andre, best of luck for the remainder of the journey. All come back safe and fantastic what you're doing. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for your support.
Andre Klein there. Good luck to him and his fellow climbers uh, as they as they brave some pretty crappy weather uh, today by the sounds of things. David Yates is rejoining me to give you his best advice. This is regard to a tip, not walking up a mountain. Definitely not it's walking up the, a mountain. No, it's in the 340 race at Salisbury this afternoon. And the bottom weight, Swift Lioness, a daughter of Roaring Lion, who's very much on an upward curve for Charlie Johnston. Comeback win at Southall last time out. And I think can continue the good work. Certainly a filly with an upwardly mobile profile. 340 race at Salisbury. Selection is number seven, Swift Lioness. Uh, David, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. That was Wednesday, June the 28th. If you do enjoy this podcast, please do tell your friends, most importantly. And then if you've got time to give us a rating or a review uh, wherever you consume your pods, that would be uh, that would be hugely appreciated. Thanks so much once again. We'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily. Brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.